0: This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for October 4th, 2022. Welcome to the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast, where we talk about everything by talking about games. My name is Drew Messenger Michaels, and as always, I'm very glad you're here. So, today I am talking to Aiden Moher. You might know his work from Wired or Kotaku. You might have read his Hugo winning blog, A Dribble of Ink, or his current newsletter, Astrolabe. But today we are here to talk about uh, his new book, The Fight Magic Items, uh, the full subtitle of which he will reveal to you in a moment. Uh, I got my hands on an early copy. There's what an early copy sounds like. And uh, really enjoyed it and was excited to talk to Aiden about it and about... The history of Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy and other JRPGs specifically through a Western lens, through the lens of somebody getting these games as they were imported or as you accessed them in some potentially extra legal way uh, or what have you in North America. So, you know, it ends up being a book and also this ends up being a conversation about that about being fascinated with Japanese imports and what that meant about cross-cultural exchange in a broader sense about how maybe the JRPG is a figure of cross-cultural exchange from the jump and to this day. So let's get to that conversation. Enjoy. Thank you uh, a ton for being here, genuinely. I know you are uh, in a mad crush of uh, of pre-release press, and I know that for sure because you blogged about it, but in uh, Mower, thank you a ton for being on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This is, uh, this is such a great opportunity, and I'm always, always happy to talk about not just my book, but like Japanese RPGs, video games, storytelling, retro gaming, and all that. Uh, well,
0: yeah. So as with any good podcast conversation, or for that matter, any good JRPG, let us begin with the beginning and then get weirder from there. Uh, What, for anybody who hasn't heard about it, is
1: Fight Magic Items? So Fight Magic Items is my book about the history of Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, and the rise of Japanese RPGs in the West. That's the book's official subtitle. And so it uh, it takes a journey from sort of the late... Uh, Late 60s is when the book starts uh, with sort of the creation of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which then goes on to uh, inspire a a couple of young uh, storytellers to make their own games, uh, Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, which sort of establish this Japanese RPG genre and become kind of heavyweights, um, especially in their own country. Uh, throughout like their the early and, and mid 80s into the 90s uh, they came over to the west and had a pretty uh you know a pretty dedicated group of uh, of fans and players uh, but you know they sort of capped out at about half a million units sold for even the most popular of them. Uh, And then in the late 90s with the release of Final Fantasy VII, uh, the genre just exploded and it sold 10 million units or whatever it was. uh, And it became this mainstream hit. And so the book explores the history of how this genre came to be, but also specifically with this kind of Western lens on it. Like how did this weird sort of Difficult to play sometimes kind of stodgy uh, Japanese style of game becomes such a massive hit in the West and continue to like inspire millions of of players and fans uh, 30 years later. It's an interesting lens, both because it
0: lets you be personal, right? You, Mm -hmm. like me, by the way, are a person, you know, in North America who experienced Mm -hmm. these things in translation and as they were released. And the book talks a fair bit about how there there was a unique pain to the period of time when a bunch of them weren't getting released Mm -hmm. over here, Uh, you know, and, and you do sing the praises of fan translations, all of that. But I think beyond those things, the book makes a pretty strong argument that the JRPG as a genre has cultural exchange baked into it. You mentioned Dungeons and Dragons as an influence, which is, which is you know, sort of the most obvious, uh, you know, vector of that. But is that fair to say that you consider the JRPG like a, a genre that perhaps more than most is specifically about, you know, cross-national,
1: cross-cultural collaboration? Absolutely. I think that's what's, uh, like, I had a good idea of, of the history of Japanese RPGs. I've been playing them for all of my life, pretty much. But when I started to dig into the the book and kind of structure it out, find the storylines, the plots, the, like the themes that ran throughout the history. The one that I kept coming back to, which forms a core of the book's narrative is this idea of Japanese RPGs being a collaboration, like this sort of cross inspirational genre between Japanese creators and and Western creators and, and games. And it started way back when with you know, Hironobu Sakaguchi and Yuji Hori being inspired by Ultima and, and Wizardry, uh, which themselves were interpretations, like digital interpretations of the Dungeons and Dragons experience. And so you had these Japanese creators wanting to build, you know, a Japanese idea of what Dungeons and Dragons was and could be and and bring it to the living rooms. And then, you know, the the genre grew out from there. And for a long time it was very um Eastern inspired. So you had these sort of Western ideas shaped by, you know, Eastern um, experiences. And, and then it became its own thing through a lot of the nineties um, with, without a lot of like Western input at that point. Uh, but we've now come f- sort of back full circle where the kids who were growing up playing final fantasy and chrono trigger and fantasy star, the kids who were like, you know, discovered video games because of final fantasy seven, they're, Making games now, right they're the ones running game studios and they're the ones directing games, writing games and that's in you know in Japan and in the west and so you're starting to see the 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 two regions and the two cultures sort of recombine again in really interesting ways and this way you're watching you know uh studios like uh sabotage in Canada sabotage is that what they're called uh they, they they're making sea of stars mm-hmm. um and it's very, very much inspired by games like Chrono Trigger. But on the flip side, you have a massive success with Final Fantasy XIV, which is like very clearly based on the Western idea of, you know, an MMORPG. And a big reason I think that it's found the success it has is because it merges these kind of longstanding Japanese RPG traditions with the the Western MMORPG. And so it satisfies like JRPG fans like myself, because it has strong single player content, it's very narrative driven, but it still gives you that sort of immersiveness of feeling like your own unique entity within this larger game world. And so you see, you know, nowadays, like Western creators who are inspired by, you know, the, the history of, of Eastern and Japanese RPGs, and you see Japanese RPGs, that are inspired and, um, take on qualities of, of popular Western games. And I just, I find that so fascinating the way there's this sort of ebb and flow of these, um, of these two cultures and, and these sort of game thought, like game design, um, theories and, and ways of thinking about game design, uh, kind of merging and influencing each other and stepping away and coming back. And, uh, and that theme runs out. Uh, this runs throughout the, the whole book, and I, I just found it fascinating to constantly be doing research and coming back to this idea of, of the East uh, and the West sort of talking to each other and creating something really beautiful that appeals to, to people across various different cultures, uh, various different experiences all around the world
0: you identify Final Fantasy XIV as sort of the moment where this recombination is all but complete, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, all these streams coming together. And MMOs obviously bring people together in the sense that people are playing together. But you also talk about MMOs as these moments of traversing boundaries. Another example would be Final Fantasy XI shipping with a 40 gigabyte hard drive and thereby sort of blurring the line between console and PC, which which the whole book is premised in a sense on those being two different streams of RPG. The JRPG is sort of defined. Defined by, I think actually, you know, you mentioned, um, you mentioned, uh, it wasn't the Sea of Stars Dev, actually. It was one of the folks working on Quartet yeah. who said that they understand the JRPG to be a child of compromise. I think it was mm-hmm. Patrick Holloman. Yeah? yeah. So, so you know, all the way back to, you know, Yuji, Hori, uh, having to take the text parser out of the uh, the Portopia serial murder case to <laughs> mm-hmm. squeeze it onto the Famicom, right? Mm-hmm. There's this notion of having to make compromises to put things onto consoles. Yeah. And then this notion every so often of those constraints getting removed or mm-hmm. PC gaming and console gaming becoming one thing or JRPGs and Western RPGs becoming more combined mm-hmm. or things like that. Is it, is it fair that it, to also say that it's a bit of a story of these things being small scale and then large scale, separate
1: and then the same? Absolutely. And I think like we can sort of look... So you had the creation of the genre on the 8-bit systems like the NES and the Sega Master System. And then through the Super Nintendo era, they sort of refined these ideas, right? Like, There's not much that separates the... 8-bit NES JRPGs from their kind of 16-bit counterparts, right? Chrono Trigger is not that far from Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy. Uh, Then we had this big leap on the PlayStation where Sakaguchi and his team had these really strong visions of like merging Japanese RPG gameplay with more cinematic storytelling. And so that wasn't just like FMV cutscenes, but the way that they use pre-rendered backgrounds to build out this really unique bespoke world where every screen was filled with detail and unique there weren't repeating you know textures there weren't uh repeating like environment tiles like everything was unique so every moment you were spending in the game felt fresh and different um and that was explored in great detail on you know the playstation uh during that era uh, you know, just behind that, though, there were the the Suikoden's and the Wild Arms and the Breath of Fires that were still sort of built in that mold, defined and, and polished by the 8 and the 16-bit eras. And so I think you started to see a bit of a divergence there with the two tracks of, you know, you had sort of like traditional, more traditional JRPGs. Um, and the ones that were sort of aiming to be something like cutting edge and new, maybe aimed at more of an... Uh, an adult or an older audience and i kind of like in the book i d- i describe these two uh tracks for jrpgs as like saturday morning rpgs and so that's like your lunar silver star story complete or grandia and then on the other side you have uh what i call primetime jrpgs and they're the ones like you know the final fantasy series some of the ones that have kind of darker themes and tones you know gears you mentioned yeah, Gears, yeah xenogears yeah. yeah. is interesting because thematically and tonally it's sort of like one of those primetime jrpgs but structurally and gameplay wise it's very Mm. similar to the the 16-bit era so you see these divergences right um but they were sort of built on compromise right and early on they had to struggle with just like low horsepower and memory associated with you know the nes and then over time they start massaging that and they start polishing that and the super nintendo offers more and then you get to chrono trigger and it feels like sort of this cap on that generation, that first golden age of JRPGs. Um, And then they sort of run into this, you know, the world of CD-ROMs and more storage space. And what do you do with that? And Final Fantasy VII is, you know, for all that it's remarkable, it also feels very rough around the edges. Like you can tell going back to it, especially if you put it up against something like Final Fantasy VIII or Final Fantasy IX, that like Sakaguchi and his team were still figuring it out. And so you had that, again, that period of experimentation and polish where at first, like they had all these sort of barriers and boundaries that constricted them creatively, which can be really invigorating for creators, I think. And they really did some wonderful things during that era. And the PlayStation 2 sort of like expanded on that even more. And I think that, you know, gets lumped in with with another golden age. Then they hit the HD era and the HD consoles came along. They offered so much that... The workflows that had supported the genre through the um, the you know from the NES to the, the PlayStation 2 just didn't work anymore. They couldn't produce assets at a rate fast enough or efficiently enough to work in at HD resolutions. And because of the sort of structure of like Japanese game development um, teams and finances, it just it was. It was like turning a cruise ship, right? They needed time. It was still quite normal to start from scratch
0: to build your own engine per game just about.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's like they didn't like middleware. They didn't want to jump on stuff like Unreal. They wanted to build a new engine for every game, which is how they did it before. And it just, it it wasn't tenable. So then the, but where, you know, where the genre at that point went was it leapt onto handheld systems and those created those sort of smaller playgrounds for the Japanese RPG genre that, that mimicked in many ways, the PlayStation and the Super Nintendo and created boundaries. So that sort of like scope creep couldn't happen. And so you had these simpler, more polished and focused ideas on the, in this handheld uh, environment. And that created like, you know, console JRPGs at the time were almost non-existent. There's a few examples of, of decent ones, blue dragon lost odyssey, I guess Final Fantasy thirteen, Tales of Vesperia, but they're few and far between. It's far from the golden age of the PS two. But on handhelds, there were so many amazing Japanese RPGs, and I think having that small playground to play in allowed for you know smaller teams, more efficient financing, uh, lower expectations of like profit return, and that was perfect for that era. And that gave them time to kind of step back and and think about it and think how to do HD. Japanese RPGs. Now, looking back in hindsight, maybe if they had been a little more disciplined and, you know, the PlayStation didn't start off with Final Fantasy VII, right? It started off with Wild Arms. It took what it already knew and then moved that forward onto a new system with, you know, some more horsepower behind it. Maybe if console RPGs at the time had been a little more conservative in what they wanted to do instead of trying to, you know, eat the whole cake at once, maybe we could have seen more console RPGs uh during that era but we got a bunch of great handheld ones and, and that to me was perfect at that time in my life because I was commuting a lot I was working I was traveling you know quite a bit and so being able to carry these games in my pocket was was excellent and now like now however 15 years later I think the Xbox 360 just celebrated its 15th anniversary which is insane to me but uh
0: that's impossible that would mean <laughs> we're very old
1: I we are aren't we oh oh no um, but like now we're in this modern age and i think we're seeing the 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 genre move into a place where both of these ideas can really thrive like we have these like experimental like really big triple a style japanese rpgs right like the xenoblade chronicles 3 or final fantasy 16 which are really like you know they're exploring the the breadth of what the technology can do but we've also seen this revival of the more like Traditional JRPGs, like you know, Sea of Stars, which I mentioned earlier, but we also have like Ayudin Chronicle and we have the weekend and Remasters, uh, Bravely Default 2 on the Switch. Like these are these are Japanese RPGs that look like modern versions of PlayStation and and Super Nintendo RPGs, and people are excited for them, right? We've we've reached a maturity of the genre where we can get excited about things that that take on familiar shapes, right? When I was a teen and I was playing the Final Fantasy games on PlayStation, PlayStation 2, I needed everything to be that next cutting-edge game, right? And that's what Hirono mm-hmm. Sakaguchi was like. He was never happy with what he was working on. He always was thinking about the next thing. He was, you know, these limits, limitations on hardware and technology drove him to to push further and reach even farther on the next thing. And I think we've come as a genre now to a place where we're comfortable with things that are experimental and push technology. We're comfortable with things that, that come in familiar shapes and fill familiar kind of holes in our fandom. And I think that that's really invigorating and exciting for me as a fan. It feels like we sort of moved out of that, like aggressive adolescence where we're trying to prove ourselves uh, and JRPGs now can just, explore sort of every you know like you hit your 20s and your 30s and you're like oh yeah no, it's it's okay to like Dungeons and, Dungeons and Dragons right <laughs> like you go sure. out and you find a Dungeons and Dragons group and like I feel like JRPGs are like oh yeah I know it's okay to have like pixel art graphics or it's okay to have sort of like more representative or like stylistic worlds that you're exploring that you don't have to chase that hyper realism that something like Final Fantasy has always gone after and, and that's really exciting to me I think there's a lot of possibility going forward yeah, that, that moment in the HD era
0: is, of course, not unique to the JRPG, that problem of, of it becoming, you know, unfe- infeasibly expensive to make games in general. And so people trying to find other, you know, other ways thinking about, you know, and also, I suppose, the diminishing returns, right? If you look at the difference between a PS1 and a PS2 game and then the difference between a PS4 and a PS5 game, you are talking about more slight differences lately not that there are not differences there are especially differences under the hood but we are at this point where i think there's a hunger for smaller things or things that embrace those constraints as you said revivalist stuff like like sea of stars the best riff on wizardry uh, or you know that kind of like old-fashioned first person dungeon traversal uh, i played recently was legend of etad etad how do you say it on the play date that thing is great mm-hmm. and it's you know it's hard to imagine you know more constraints than a one-bit screen mm-hmm. in in a certain sense right um so what you're talking about with with we, we embrace something that's maybe a little more traditional or more of a thing we like or that explores, you know, genuinely new things narratively without necessarily having to be the next big thing technologically. Yes. Yeah. This in a certain sense... Is the divide between Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, right? Mm-hmm. We've we've already been talking about Final Fantasy more than Dragon Quest, and that's kind of neatly meta because I think from a Western JRPG fan point of view, that was the thing, right? I mean, I you you talk about your experiences in the book, and I and I and I want to hear I want to hear more from you because I'm greedy, uh, but but for me, you know, my first Final Fantasy was the first Final Fantasy mm. uh, when it came out, and I think it was 1990. Whereas I, to my everlasting shame, uh, and I mean to fix this soon, I've still not played a Dragon Quest game to completion. I've Mm -hmm. messed around with them. But but I think that what you're saying is, is a big part of why. We were hungry for the next big thing over here, whereas I think... The Dragon Quest fandom, which is massive, and you know, still still largely in Japan, but I think like you know, the the sales were two thirds in Japan as opposed to three quarters on Dragon Quest Eleven or something like that. Like it's it's changing slowly. I think that fandom is a lot more comfortable with iterations on a thing they already know they like. Um, is is that fair to say? Like like, and maybe this comes down to Hori versus Sakaguchi, you know, and and personalities. But are those is that another way that we could think of the two? personalities of the JRPG that like small c conservatism versus that hunger to experiment and try crazy new things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think Sakaguchi and Hori have have spoken to that and Hori has talked about how he believes that Dragon Quest fans are like, you know, small c conservative fans. They 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 know what they like and they look for familiar things from that series. And I do think that you know As Sakaguchi kind of put his stock in always pushing technology forward and chasing that, you know, chasing that ideal of this blended cinematic experience for video games, you know, eventually leading him to actually making a movie, which was like a very westernized film, right? Spirits Within was like, it didn't resemble what I felt Final Fantasy was at all. Um, but I think that that idea of always having to push for more and more and more faster, faster, faster is a very Western idea. I think we're kind of soaked in in that concept that if we're not moving forward, if we're not growing exponentially, then it's it's failure, right? Um, And I think that's absolutely at the root of why Final Fantasy took off immensely in, in the West. And, and Dragon Quest is still sort of like, you know, it, it is popular. We're getting most of the releases now, whereas in the past, a lot of Dragon Quest games just... Were never released in the West, but um, you know, we we all kind of come to to games for for different reasons, and to have creators who are who are recognizing that and recognizing that at like the core of the creation of their their series and continuing to provide that because you know Sakaguchi eventually left Square, Final Fantasy continued, and it continues in the tradition that he wanted. It continues to explore new design. you know, boundaries. It continues to push Japanese RPGs into to different areas, sometimes to, you know, great effect and like final fantasy 14 and sometimes to awkward effect like final fantasy 15. But I appreciate, you know, like as sure. much as I think final fantasy 15 is like a, a broken game, even with all the downloadable content, I appreciate what it tried to do. And I appreciate that. it tried to do that on the flip side. I love Fi- dragon quest 11. And I think the way that Hori um, is able to take that core experience that he like created on the NES and bring it forward into like a form that like is very recognizable. It's it's very much the same game. And Dragon Quest Eleven even like ties narratively into some of the NES games. Yeah, right? I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna um, say another
0: way you could think of it is like restlessness versus yeah. peace or patience, right? Yeah. Like Dragon Quest Eleven from the bit that I've played of it is just very secure with what it is. Yeah. Whereas, whereas, Final Fantasy is always always trying to get on to the next thing, it's it's almost embarrassed about its past sometimes. I think mm-hmm. some of the re releases with like the weird fonts they stick in and the way they mess with the pixel graphics, yeah. there's a weird discomfort with the past. Whereas Dragon Quest is quite at home with, comfortable with, celebratory
1: of its mm-hmm. past. That's really interesting because, it, like. I don't know what it is with Square. Some of their remasters are really great. The Legend of Mana remaster was was mm. quite good. Um, you know, the Saga Frontier one was, those are sort of their some of their niche games, right? But then they release uh, the pixel remasters for Final Fantasy, or they re-release Chrono Cross. And those remasters are, I mean, the pixel remasters are, are generally very good, but they do have the weird font thing, right? And Chrono Cross was like, seemed like a very slapdash. But then you look at something like um I or sorry, not Iudin Chronicle, but uh the an HD remaster, and that's coming from a company that like for years seemed like it had entirely forgotten that series existed, and then all of a sudden they announce and and show off this this remaster that looks very like respectful of the source material. It understands why those games were appealing. It understands why those games looked good, why their graphics worked, and how to modernize that, what to keep from the old games, what to what to bring into the new era. And that to me is really interesting to put up against what Square has been doing. Um because, you know, there's no doubt that Suicidin is a much, much smaller series than Final Fantasy. It has lower sales potential, but Konami is putting all of this effort into it. And then you look at a game like Dragon Quest XI that it was a a big you know, modern era Dragon Quest, right? Big, expansive 3D world, HD console, but it was also a 3DS game, right? right a 3D game right. on a handheld system. It was also a 16-bit game. Like they, they're they so unashamed of the past. They're so, they embrace that history. That you can just so play the new one that fondly way. Totally. <laughs> that you could play the new Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest 11, you can play it as a Super Nintendo game. You can play it as a 3DS game. They they built the same huge 100-hour RPG three times because they embrace the past and they're proud of that. And they're proud of the fact that these games can still fit into the mold that they cast, uh, 30 years ago. And like, I don't know that there's any right or wrong answer to that. I think final fantasy, you know, stumbles a bit more than dragon quest does because of that. You know, I think that some of the work that square does is, you know, it's ambition or it's, you know, it kind of exceeds the resources that they put towards it. Uh, But I still appreciate that they, they put it out there for accessibility purposes. You know, would I like them to put the effort into the Chrono Cross remaster that uh, Konami's putting into Suikoden? Like, absolutely. But, uh, but, you know, I, at the end of the day, like if these games are coming out and, and new people can play them and experience them, I'm happy about that, um, but that that reverence for no, it's not even reverence for the past because I think we should constantly be looking, you know, forward. We shouldn't rest too much on the past, but warmth and respect for for that legacy, I think, can really inform great creations um, if we understand how to take the really great parts of it and 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 create a modern experience around that. Warmth is a really good word.
0: Yeah, I think I think that I think that resonates.
1: And I, I guess I guess I want to add a little
0: nuance, which is that the Dragon Quest games do experiment. Uh, the latest Tim Rogers Mega Review has a little sidebar about Dragon Quest Seven, for example, and how mm-hmm. the first eight hours of it have no combat. That's that's pretty avant-garde for like the biggest JRPG series mm-hmm. in Japan. And Square, you know, for all of their weird embarrassment about their pixel fonts, for some reason I will never understand, they are, you know, yoked to the past, even as they're Mm. a bit embarrassed by it. I mean, like, I I would be curious to hear where you think the Final Fantasy VII remake trilogy plus fits into this. Like, on on the one hand, it's like an obvious escalation where, you know, Final Fantasy VII was this big multimedia project across several discs, and now it's being remade in the form of several games, each of which has several discs as well as DLCs and side stories. this weird mega serial and yet it's not some wild new thing. It's final fantasy seven again, except when it isn't. So I mean like, where, where do you think that fits into sort of the restlessness of final fantasy? It's, it's weird relationship to its own past. Like you, you only talk a bit about it in the book. So I guess I'm also just general, generally curious, you know, about your relationship to, you know, what bits of the remake series we have so far.
1: Yeah. So I think I just want to say, I think that's a really good point about like Dragon Quest seven and and innovation within that Dragon Quest series that Mm -hmm. Corey kept familiar and comfortable foundations so that he could push in particular ways. Right. And those experimentations stand out within his games because it's not just as broad big experiment that maybe all the pieces together don't add up to much he knows his games are going to be solid dragon quest 7 is it has its issues but um the experimentation within the dragon quest structure is always uh appealing to me uh final fantasy 7 remake is super interesting and i hate it but remaster like the second one was announced after like my book was like submitted and finalized so i couldn't Mm. really and i didn't really have the knowledge at the time to touch on its sort of meta its place in the meta kind of conversation about the series i had approached it as you
0: couldn't approach it as a macro series. no exactly yeah yeah sure
1: and i had my suspicions like I i went and found a text i sent to my brother like when remake came out and I was like, oh, this isn't like Final Fantasy VII Remake. Like, what a dumb name. This is Final Fantasy VII Remake. And then we're going to get Final Fantasy VII Reunion. And then we're going to get Final Fantasy VII Reborn. And I was like, this is like, at the time, I was like, this is a, a remake, but it's a sequel. It's it's both, right? It's in conversation with itself. Um, totally. And so I I did write um, on my Medium blog, which is called Insert Cartridge. I wrote um, quite extensively about Final Fantasy VII uh, remake at the time and speculated a little bit on that and so I was really gratified when um the second part was announced and it fit right into that right like this isn't a straight remaster it's a it's a remake and a sequel and a retelling and it's all of these things in one and like I'm not always up for Tetsuya Nomura's like bullshit like I uh, Kingdom Hearts, not- <laughs> I really enjoyed the first one, but I You're like- You're not
0: into vague guys in robes no, vaguely influencing the plot vaguely? I'm no. not,
1: I'm not. I should be, I, I'm not. But in this case, I just like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of into it. It's like so out there, this idea of like a remake being in conversation with the original game that's so beloved. And like the whole concept, the core concept is like rewriting this beloved past. It, like, I don't know. I think that's kind of cool. Like, is are they going to pull it off? I don't know. I don't have, like, the highest, you know, like, comfort in saying, like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great beginning to end because, like, we've all seen Square Games, you know, have really strong beginnings and then tail out at the end, right? Arguably um, including
0: Final Fantasy, VII, I mean.
1: Final Fantasy VII. Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy Twelve, like, it happens, right? They have these really strong openings. So, who knows? I thought Final Fantasy Seven Remake was awesome. Like, wandering around Midgar for 45 hours. It, like with that fidelity, like it, it took me right back to being like a kid in my friend's dark bedroom, you know, like watching him play through the, the opening on release day, like I was right there. And so if they can bring that feeling back, that nostalgia back and also fill it with sort of twists on formula and stuff, twists on like what my expectations are for the story, like I don't see at this point how they can go in and and just like with a straight face, pull off, you know, the twist. In the mid game, right? Like, I don't see how they at this point can just be like, "Oh yeah, and here you go, surprise!" Because, like, nobody will be surprised, and that's sort of like it's it's against the idea of this like retelling of the story. And so, Unless like, it's I, a double bluff, and all the hinting that they won't do it is so that they can then do it and surprise a little bit.
0: But yeah, they painted themselves into this not a corner, but they've it's they've 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 twisted so many times that it's like it's 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 taut, and at some point yeah. they have to release it and let yeah. it untwist and snap into form.
1: Yeah, and like for me, I, I like. I almost, because of the scope and scale of the remake, I'm almost glad that they're doing something bold and weird with it. Like, to me, when I thought of Final Fantasy VII Remake, like, you know, the weird mobile one that, like, uses the chibi characters? Mm -hmm. I don't even know what it's called, but it's like, like it's it's a more traditional straightforward remake of final fantasy 7 with like dirge of cerberus content added in and and all the like side story stuff added into that story and that looks like a stri- pretty straightforward final fantasy 7 remake that's what i always wanted right i just wanted a version of final fantasy 7 that you know the characters didn't look ridiculous running around on the maps because they're made out of like six polygons and so like these two things exist and i think that that's fun for me as a fan like it, uh, you know, Final Fantasy VII is really important to me in terms of like how it changed Japanese RPGs, but it ranks pretty far down my list of fi- favorite Final Fantasies. I think it's, it has a lot of problems. Um, and I had already discovered the genre at that point. Like I was already like a hardened JRPG fan. So it didn't introduce me. I don't, so I don't have that level of nostalgia for it. So for me, it's like I'm not offended that Sephiroth is trying to steal my memories of the original game and rewrite them. I'm like, yeah, okay, dude, like let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> right, rewrite them already.
0: No, yeah. it's and you write a bit in the book about those those folks who were the right age or just weren't into JRPGs, such mm-hmm. that Final Fantasy VII was their introduction to the genre. And they then they of course went looking for more games like that. And it's you know it's like that line in Ghost World, right? Like, how do, where do I find more records like this? There are no more records like this, right? At the time, mm-hmm. it was unique. It was the first of its kind. Mm-hmm. So you know some people then discovered a whole world of of a different branch of the of the uh, JRPG tree or a whole bunch of different branches, and some were frustrated and confused. <laughs> for a while there, yeah. So, so it's like when we talk about Final Fantasy 7 you know, changing everything. That was that was partly just due to its sheer success. That was partly due to the change of medium to, to CDs. That was partly cinematic aspirations that would soon sort of uh, be the rocks against which you know Square, you know, generally and Sakaguchi specifically uh, broke themselves in the form of Spirits Within. Um, but, but is there more to say? I mean, like there's, there's a million things to say, obviously, but are there other really important salient points as far as why Final Fantasy VII specifically is the inflection point, you know, beyond just the shift to, of medium into 3D and all that?
1: Yeah. I mean, marketing budget. It had an enormous marketing <laughs> $30 million, dollars, yeah, right? Like, what? like an insane marketing budget. And that's a, that's a huge part of it. Right. And why... You know, and how they knew this was the right time to do that—I I don't know. I don't know how they do did it. I don't know how they convinced everybody to put that much money into marketing it, but it worked. You know, like I, I you know, anybody who is sort of a, you know of the age to be paying attention to these, like, can remember all the ads for this game. Right. It, and it had like television ads and stuff. Like it was crazy, which was um, unheard of at the time. I mean, yeah, like there for were a video game like that, Yeah, <laughs> that Nint- was Nintendo happened. circulated yeah.
0: those weird VHSs. You know, yes. to, to yeah, preview yeah, I, I still They're have some of
1: those. I think, I Oh, them. me too. I don't for don't sure. I was, that, yeah.
0: I was into them, but you had to be yeah. subscribed to Nintendo power and exactly. basically already
1: invested. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas
0: these, this was an ad blitz, like for the yeah. blockbuster movie, yeah. which it was,
1: yeah. it was, it was crazy and it was successful. But I think what also happened and whether somebody, you know, like, recognize that this was like the time it was also happening as anime was becoming popular in the West. Right. It coincided with sort of like the rise in popularity of stuff like Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball. Right. Like at the same time we were discovering and like really falling in love with Final Fantasy seven, we were also, you know, like racing home after school to catch Dragon Ball and hope that it didn't just, you know, like reset to the beginning of the Frieza saga again. Uh, you know, we had been watching sailor moon before school for a few days for a few years at that point. And then, you know, we're also starting to trade ghost in the shell tapes and I, my timelines might be off here. I might not be right with the correct anime, but like starting to get into and experiencing some of these like really classic, uh, animes, right. Like Akira ghost in the shell, Ninja scroll, like all of those things that were making us feel like, you know, grownups as teenagers really mature. Um. You then release a game like Final Fantasy VII is the first one that's like very obviously anime inspired. Um, The Super Nintendo was like just at the end of its lifespan, getting to the point where it could like portray graphics that, that replicated the feel of anime. Like Chrono Trigger, you look at a screenshot of Chrono Trigger, it's like very clearly... Uh, curatoriyama's work
0: oh yeah and and the box wasn't shy about it for once exactly like a lot yes. of western box yes. art yeah, yeah yeah so
1: there's they're selling this right at the end of the super nes era and then final fantasy 7 comes out and like visually it shares a lot in common with anime you know like it's sort of post in industrial post-apocalyptic feel of Midgar, it feels very similar to stuff like you, you know, you're seeing by the end of Akira and, and with Neo Tokyo and stuff like that. Like, I think all of that's also intentional and whether that, whether that was what was driving Sakaguchi as he was creating the game or whether that was something that, you know, astute marketing people, people at square were like, okay, like we have this game. It's made for a Japanese audience, but look at what anime is doing right now in the States. This is the time. This is the time to invest in this series. Uh, I don't know, like I don't know exactly what was going on in which boardrooms, but um, but that connection, I think, between the rise of anime in the West and Japanese RPGs really blowing the lid off things with um, with Final Fantasy VII and then like follow up games like Xenogears um, is not a coincidence, right? Xenogears, I mean, obviously has a lot of uh, Evangelion like influences and i we didn't connect those at the time but we were seeing that kind of stuff in magazines and in the back of game fan they were selling this stuff right and then all of a sudden there's this follow-up to final fantasy 7 that has mechs and it's like oh i like mechs like i saw that cool anime at the back in the back of game fan and um and so all of that was tied together i think into into this rise and like just i we just wanted everything japanese everything we could get right we wanted the anime we wanted the games and um you know we played a lot of japanese games mario is japanese right but it didn't it didn't feel like anime and so we wanted we so started to associate anime and manga with with japan and and we just needed it all and and those these games uh during the playstation era especially really fit into that and i think that was probably a fairly broad common experience among people my age i'm in my late 30s now so i was like you know 15 when this was happening yeah yeah yeah. I'm a little bit younger than you. I'm in my mid
0: 30s. So, okay, but yeah. but similar deal, right? Where yeah. I think you're right to locate that getting into JRPGs with a a more uh, generalized obsession with Japaneseness. The word "weeb" does not appear in your book. I checked, but <laughs> but that you know that's that's one aspect of mm-hmm. it, right? This this idea of the allure of this whole other alternative entertainment, you know, uh, universe. But also, yeah, like the obvious overlaps between, for example, Evangelion and Xenogears, Not just the big robots, but big robots plus religious imagery, plus mm-hmm. you know, plus feelings. Right? Like yeah. these things are all these things are all of a piece. And yeah. I think we're you know it's it's maybe hard for for um for people to. To understand if they grew up with the internet you know what it is to like set your vcr to tape something yeah. at 3 a.m to get the to get the latest yeah. anime and then to maybe get a weird garbled edited version yeah. of it yeah. specifically because those who imported it were worried that if yeah. it was too japanese it would be unacceptable yeah. right yeah, like yeah. you say you say that mario doesn't feel that japanese but also you know like and, that, and that's true right like mario is universal in a, yes. in a very obvious way yeah. but also you know it was pretty normal to make games less japanese to yeah. take out little things in localization to avoid yeah. uh alienating uh, right. a western audience the being, you know, that audience became hungry for
1: that stuff yes. at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just like, <laughs> this was like a period again, like for people who weren't around then, like, this is a period where like, you'd get a dubbed VHS, a like record of Lodos war and it would have two episodes and it would have cost somebody $70, right. For like two episodes. <laughs> so that like, I don't know, I just, I guess I went to the right high school, but like this stuff was popular at my high school. Like it wasn't like, it wasn't just the realm of like nerds, right? It was like broadly popular, stuff like anime, Japanese RPGs, fantasy novels. Like it didn't get you know, like ostracized or anything. So you know, anime VHSs would be passed around. And like, so you'd finally get your hands on that, you know, episodes three and four of record of Lotos War or whatever. And so you'd go home and you'd daisy chain your your VCRs together to like dub the tape. So then you'd you know, you'd end up with your your blank VHS tape, you'd write Record of Lodos War episode three and four in Sharpie. And then you'd have this like slightly degraded version of Record of Lodos War. Cause like every, every time you copied it, it got worse. And then you're, you know, you'd watch those endlessly. Then you'd lend it to your friend and they would copy your version. They'd have like a slightly worse version than yours. And like, it would kind of go down the line like that. And that's how stuff like, that's how we acquired Japanese media at the time. Right. It was like, it was like bootleg. It was, um, it was passed around. It was word of mouth. It was knowing the right people. And so I think what also happened is like, you know, we could get Dragon Ball on. We I live in Canada. We watched YTV was, was a kid's channel. They are Dragon Ball, but only some episodes. Sailor Moon, same thing. But like Japanese RPGs were there. They were being sold in stores. You could go to Toys R Us and you could buy Final Fantasy or, you know, whatever. Breath of Fire or Xenogears or what have you. And it was right there right? It was accessible. It was in places that we could like save up our money and go buy. And we weren't spending $70 on two episodes of record of lodos war. we were spending $70 on a game that we were going to spend 150 hours playing across multiple playthroughs. And so that convergence of like, you know, this rise in Japanese media, but also accessibility as that got better and better, um, specifically through video games, I think had a, had a big piece of that. Um, we couldn't copy the video games. So we're all having to buy our own versions of it right rather than pass around a cartridge yes or yes but funny enough the playstation era is sort of the first time that me and my friends were finally able to all afford our own copies right Mm -hmm. so like we all shared a final fantasy 6 cartridge we played it one at a time uh final fantasy 7 hit though and we all owned it right because the cd media was also cheaper right so final fantasy 6 or 3 at the time probably cost 80 or 90 dollars right Final Fantasy VII is forty nine ninety nine. Let's let's emphasize here: price stabilization didn't really happen until the CD
0: era and in, yes. in the SNES era, the era of cartridges, partially because there would yes. actually sometimes be different stuff, different yeah. chips in the cartridge. Yeah. Well, the prices yeah. could 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 vary pretty wildly.
1: I, I was just watching a. a... Uh, YouTube video about um, from Digital Foundry about the creation of Doom for the Super NES. And it had like every chip in there. Like it it was like everything you could put into a, a cart was in there. So And Doom cost a ton of money, but it didn't have battery backup. Mm. Right. So like, you know, you couldn't save your progress. And that's because a battery would have cost $2 per cart. And they had already spent so much on the other chips that they're like, ah, we can't do the battery thing. And so they they cut battery backup out of there just to save two bucks on a cart. Because like everything would cost different amounts based on what was inside that, uh, you know, like on that chipboard.
0: That's wild. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. So
1: that, that was no longer a thing in the era yeah.
0: of of cds uh, you might you may in fact it was perfectly possible to ship a game like final fantasy 7 across multiple discs mm-hmm. right which you, you know a multiple cartridge game <laughs> wasn't a thing because there was there were no memory cards to save on yeah. th- for most of the uh, yeah. most of the history not all of it of, yeah. of uh of cartridge based games but also because you know if if you're looking at shipping two snes cartridges for a game you're talking about like a 180 eighty dollar game or something right it, it becomes absurd very quickly yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So when you talk about the expanded scope and the sort of multimedia project aspect that, that Final Fantasy VII represents the possibility of, it's partly just a, a, it's enabled by technology as well as by ambition. Important to
1: note. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like, not just like increasing technology, but also cost of technology, you know, like absolutely, getting yeah. that double whammy of like exponentially more memory at like a significantly cheaper price is just like that's an inflection point for like mainstream popularity, I think. 100%.
0: Well, I mean, if we're talking about cost and we're talking about sharing games with your friends, I do think we need to bring up the E word, right? Like it's it's important mm-hmm. because, you know, for me, like, you know, I hungrily, you know, bought games as they became commercially legitimately available. But, you know, the way I played Terranigma, the way that I played, you know, um, the way that I played the third mana game. Mm-hmm the way that I played a lot of this stuff was on an emulator. I mean, yeah. there was no other way to play it except by, you know, having a modded or, or a Japanese system. And yeah. if you wanted to play it in English, fan translations were the only way to do that. They're now a lot more accessible than they were, but they existed back then. Yeah. So, you know, the, the book touches on it a bit, but but how do you think, you know, fan translations, fan preservations fit into this story? How did they fit into your story? Was there a point where you yeah. were discovering new stuff mostly that way, or have you always been pretty dedicated to sort of finding the original hardware?
1: yeah so like i can like i can just say straight up like fight magic items wouldn't exist without emulation because Mm. it was about five years ago six years ago um you know i had played japanese rpgs all my life and i collect like i bought a lot of stuff new so i had a, a fairly like robust healthy collection of japanese rpgs uh especially some of the more expensive ones um but they were all stored away at my parents house right i didn't have old consoles set up at that time um But I was like, I wonder if those games hold up. I was playing a lot of modern RPGs, like JRPGs, but mostly focused on new releases, like just keeping up with with new games coming out. And I was like, I wonder if those hold up. Like, you know, do I have the imagination to like project those sort of symbolic graphics into my head the same way and and see that and enjoy it? And so I was like, I want to check out a game that I've never played that, you know, I've always wanted to and see how that goes and so i loaded up and i, I played through uh terra for the first time um and loved it it was great right so and i was like okay so this good. game like i've never played it before so there's no nostalgia there's nostalgia for the style but not the game itself um and i was like that was really fun so then i did it again i, I played through lufia 2 and so and maybe it was the other way around lufia 2 than terra enigma mm-hmm. um so, you know, then all of a sudden I was like, oh, actually, like these games are really fun. I'm really still invested in this. I'd like to explore this more, you know, like revisiting these games from my childhood and teenagedom um, as an adult. And so I started collecting my my original hardware that was stored away at my parents' house and and setting it up and and playing through older games. And, you know, that just sort of like started building on itself. And then I started recognizing like, oh, OK, like. I'm really having fun with this experience. Let me write about it. Let me write about like Chrono Trigger or Lunar or, you know, like Japanese RPGs um, and their influence, like through the lens of an adult. Like, I think a lot of people would think of stuff like Final Fantasy seven, like, oh yeah, you know, I loved that when I was a kid. It doesn't have to be that way. And so I started writing about that more broadly. And, um, you know, I, I've gotten quite into original hardware now. Like, I bought lots of games and filled out holes in my collection. I'm like right beside me here. I have three CRT uh, TVs and monitors set up. I have a you know Saturn and Dreamcast and a Super Nintendo and everything kind of set up to my left. I, I play you've written, you've written and spoken a bit, by the way, about the advantages of and the unique appeal
0: of a, of CRTs.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think to like to me, that's such a like a terrific like experience to be able to like play these games on. old hardware but that's also not necessary right there are lots of great tools now like great emulators that are out there that give us access to these games um and you know on top of that you can apply if you like the look of crts and you want something that looks more like period appropriate there's lots of like you know filters and scalars that you can pop on top of an emulator um and so like that gives people lots of access and then there's also tools that allow you to you know like use backed up games files on original hardware so like stuff like the fx pack pro so you load up roms onto that and you can play them on original hardware on on crts and and you know so that's sort of a middle ground between emulator and real hardware and um and i think just accessibility the hardest thing about like maintaining like and and, and preserving the history of video games is like as they become obsolete if nobody puts care into like making them available again you they'll be lost. They're not like a book, right? If I go into my closet and I find a book from my childhood, a favorite novel that I haven't seen in 30 years, I pick it up, I read it. If I go into that same closet and I find a game cartridge and I go, Oh, this game's amazing. I want to play it, but I don't have the console to play it on. I can't do anything with it. And so emulation I think is key in terms of accessibility and preservation of video games. And that goes back like to 20 years, right to the beginning of this, uh, the century when the first like high profile fans translations were coming out and and you mentioned a few of them like second den three which is trials of mana now neil corlett did a, a fan translation of that and around 2000 2001 so quite a while ago now final fantasy five is another big one um oh, yeah that might have been the first fan translation i played Actually, it was for a lot of people right it was like and it, like, just that fan translation alone has an amazing story, but it was, you know, Final Fantasy 4 came out here, and then for a number of reasons, they didn't release 5, they released 6. 6 was a big hit, and then 7 came along, and everybody's like, wait a sec, because they 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 went back to the, the Japanese naming scheme for 7, right? So it's like, wait a sec, we went Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy 2, Final Fantasy 3, Final Fantasy 7? Like, where are these other ones? And then, so then there's this missing Super NES Final Fantasy. I'm just really glad good. they pulled
0: that bandaid off at some point. I'm glad we didn't stay in that hell forever. But
1: yes, it was very confusing at the time. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, but it also kind of highlighted this whole and and Final Fantasy 5 is like, it's one of my very favorites in the series. And it's also very like gameplay driven, more than story driven. And so, you know, the the, the original fan translation, is, it's fine. It's not a work of art, but the effort and the heart and soul that went into it was incredible. Like these were it was basically a group of like three kids who was who was making this and making a game available to western players that just you couldn't play, right? You could order it from the back of a magazine, a, a Japanese cart um and play it in Japanese on your Super Nintendo but you couldn't understand anything. And so all of a sudden because of emulators and because of the fan community, you could experience this like long lost Super NES Japanese RPG and that's only sort of become more and more applicable over the years as more fans have translated more and more and more uh, of these kind of long lost Japanese RPGs. And it was a big story. It was always, you know, I pined over the the games that didn't make it over to the West uh, from Japan and always, you know, I always wanted to play them and so did everyone else. And nowadays you can um, because of fan translations, you know, you have to legally acquire a version of the ROM, you know, so you could buy a cheap cart. Japanese carts are usually pretty cheap on eBay, dump your ROM and then apply the patch to it and play it. Uh, or what have you, or there, you know, there are other, uh, archives on the internet that, that provide access to these, uh, games and you can get this window. It's like getting a brand new super Nintendo game in, in 2022 and it's incredible. And then yeah, I think yeah. the success that these fans have had have caused companies like Nintendo and square Enix to, to go back to some of the classics. So like we've got official, an official translation of the first earthbound game mother, right? Um, earthbound zero it was localized as earthbound beginnings i think they call it Yeah, uh, beginnings yeah that's right um and then trials of mana like 20 years later at uh, 20 years after neil corlett did a fan translation of trials of mana like square did it they remade it as a 3d game and then also tr- like fully translated a super nintendo game and i think that shows how like fan curiosity about these missing games has driven a part of the culture that has become invested in the games themselves. Um, and you see people like um Clyde Mandolin, who did the Mother Three, the the Earthbound sequel sequel for the Game Boy, it's one of the best fan translations of all time. Um, Clyde Mandolin and a few others worked on it. And he also does like, you know, professional translation work, right? So you have people who like, you know, were inspired by this this drive to to to. Dig up these lost treasures, turn that into a career that's now impacting and, and shaping the games that we love, the official releases that we love now.
0: No, it's a truly it's a truly beautiful thing.
1: And mm-hmm. and just to be totally clear about what we're talking about, just for anybody who's
0: not deep into this scene or isn't maybe even aware that it exists, if you play the officially released collection of mana, you are playing emulated games. There is an emulator under the hood. But when we talk about emulators, we are talking about the kinds that do not necessarily have commercial blessings, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we all know that whenever you play an emulated game, what you do is dump your own copy of the ROM. No one has ever done it any other way.
1: Absolutely.
0: But, right, yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly. <laughs> but but I, I do think it's important to highlight that you know, there's this, this, I guess, almost chicken and egg thing where all the stuff that's come to the West wouldn't have come to the West without fan enthusiasm and fan enthusiasm wouldn't have survived. A lot of these games literally wouldn't have survived without people preserving them with no regard whatsoever for commercial interests or indeed copyright or intellectual property law. That's actually really important to sort of highlight. And I think celebrate, I think, I think works of art matter as more than products. And so therefore we need people you know, making sure they live, whether or not somebody can currently make a
1: buck off of them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the trick. Like, you know, you do have sort of the like commercialization of the games industry and it, it does take a lot of money to make a video game. So there needs to be some sort of return, right? Well, it's totally. just like not it, saying it, don't it pay for things. trick. Yeah. But, yeah. Just uh, saying
0: things you can't pay for. It's real good. You can still get them. Yes. Like exactly. it's good for yeah. humanity. <laughs> no
1: question yeah, about absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, can you imagine if, you know, like if paintings were just tossed? you know, famous paintings were just tossed because more than half of all the films,
0: you know, early film, right. is mostly gone for exactly that reason. People thought it was disposable. Yeah. That's a a
1: perfect example. One thing I think also like to, to point at the fan community and the the kind of drive and like influence that fans have is like one of the biggest JRPG releases of the year right now is Xenoblade Chronicles Mm three. And I don't think that game would exist without um, the fans that organized uh you know a a group a a group uh i don't even know what to call it it was a group called operation rain a movement yeah i don't know a movement um to petition nintendo and and monolith soft uh to release a game called xenoblade chronicles in the in the west it got released in in Japan. And it looked, it was from the creator of Zeno gears and Zeno saga. Like it had like a creator who was quite well known. It looked really cool. Um, and it was and by highlighted the, the, the complicated, the complicated
0: like, relationships of the Zeno games to each other is described quite well in the book. If you're, if you're confused, yes. uh, you, yes. it's, it's normal to be. <laughs> yes. Stage. Yeah.
1: It, so it's like, it's three separate, like <laughs> separate series with their own stories that are sort of thematically, tied together it's it's complex but xenoblade chronicles is by far the most successful of them and it wouldn't have existed without this sort of like movement of people formed on the internet on like ign's message boards with you know who who petitioned and pushed for nintendo to release this game uh in the west and and there's no there's no recorded you know like there's nobody on record saying like yes operation rainfall is why Xenoblade Chronicles finally was, was released in North America and Europe. Um, You know, it was released in Europe first uh, and then in North America later. Uh, But like, to me, it it seems very, very clear that like it was in this period where console JRPGs were in this real doldrums and there wasn't a lot of like, it didn't seem like there was a lot of audience for it, but there was, we were just waiting for the right game and Xenoblade Chronicles was, was that game And, and they released it in the west and it's been like remade for the 3ds it's been remade for the switch it's been you know xenoblade chronicles 2 and 3 have been huge releases and that was like off the back of effort and love and you know blood and sweat and tears from the fan community pushing for nintendo to to recognize that that investment in the genre was worth it and now nintendo you know with the switch it's one of the best jrpg systems you know of all time. In my opinion, it's just loaded with incredible experiences. And it just, to me, it just feels right playing JRPGs on a, on a Nintendo system. And that I think you can all tie back to the fan involvement uh, and the the passion of the fan community.
0: Yeah. It would almost, it's tempting to say we're in a third golden age, actually. I I too share that jolt when I play them on a Nintendo, a Nintendo specifically, but yeah, it's, it it seems like we have an embarrassment of riches these days between remakes and,
1: and new works that carry on some tradition or other. Absolutely. Yeah. It, like just at the access that we have, you know, like I, I have a piece um, that's coming out on Life Lifehacker uh, probably next week about uh, m- like classic JRPGs that you can play on modern systems. And I like I had to cap myself off at 19. 19- games it was like three thousand words long it's like so chunky and i I could have made it three times the size and that's just classic releases right from remasters of chrono cross and sweet it into you know streamable versions of wild arms um the live alive like hd or hd 2d remaster like we have access to all these old games but then we also have so many amazing like new games coming out right i am playing xenoblade right now um and you know, near automata and, and that series is kind of blown up and it still has legs. Right. And then, you know, Diofield Chronicles is coming out. Aquopath Traveler two is coming out. Tales from zero is finally getting a Western release. And it's just like, it's hard to keep up. Um, You could just play classics and fill up your time on modern systems, let alone all of these new games. And to me, like, you know, is it a golden age in terms of like, are the heights as high as stuff like Chrono Trigger? Like, I don't I don't know. I don't know, you know, like, is Near Automata, has it created as many new fans for JRPGs as Final Fantasy X or Final Fantasy VII did? I don't know. But I feel like just in terms of like, is this a golden age for JRPGs? Like, I want to say yes, because there's never been a better time to be a fan of the genre. You have access to so much out there. That you can experience it from its, you know, like its its very beginnings to like modern JRPGs, without having to go to, to much length or jump through many hoops. And to me, that's like accessibility is is the ultimate key, and it's the ultimate sign of like you know uh, health of a genre and health of you know like a fandom as well. Um, and I think right now we're we're really right in the the thick of that.
0: Yeah, 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 here here. And
1: I mean, so you mentioned the nier
0: games, which are really special to me. And I think one of the smartest things you 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 don't do in this book is try to define JRPG. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure there are those who would quibble with nier and particularly nier automata, which is which is in some ways a character action game. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a lot of things. Nier automata is a whole bunch of things, and that's part of the appeal. But it's, you know, it it if we're talking about classical JRPGs, people think about turn based combat all of that mm-hmm. like you you definitely talk about Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest as two series that began that way uh, and you know one that one that more or less stayed that way uh, as sort of the roots of the tree, but then the branches go out in all kinds of crazy directions and anything that's sort of adjacent to it, anything like, you know, even like anime or whatever, anything that someone who's into those might also be into potentially belongs in the conversation and the filter from there is just stuff that's hit you and been important to you or that you've encountered while researching. Is that fair to say that that sort of loose definition is actually key to what the book is up to and how to make the, the frankly
1: impossible task you set yourself a little bit more possible? Yeah absolutely i like i'm a big fan of like big genre buckets like i don't like the idea of trying to like hardline classify something as like a jrpg or not a jrpg um i think that something like a like a genre label like jrpg is like it's a set of influences it's a set of ideas it's a set of you know game design philosophies that can be picked from or and you know create inspiration It doesn't have to be like something, you know, it doesn't have to be Bravely Default 2, which is clearly in the mold of the original JRPGs. Because if you look at something like Final Fantasy 16, like Final Fantasy is very obviously a JRPG series, right? It created it alongside Dragon Quest. But Final Fantasy 16 is like steering even more towards like character action. And Yoshi P, who's producing the game, has gone on record saying like, we have gone in this direction with like a more action-oriented uh, combat system because we want to appeal to younger players but like if if you you're gonna say like near can't be a jrpg because it's a character action game then you have to say final fantasy 16 isn't a <laughs> jrpg because it's right. no, it's a character action game like or, or go in that direction right it's also such an interestingly bewildering comment
0: because like i know what he means but also yeah. you know what younger players love undertale which yeah. is much more recognizably a, a classic jrpg in a lot of ways than some of the more recent final fantasies
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think like, I think Undertale is a great example because, it, you know, on the flip side, it's true. You can have games like Undertale or Cosmic Star Heroine and, and Sea of Stars and and stuff, games that are created by Western uh, designers that they feel like JRPGs, right? Like they look like JRPGs or structured like JRPGs, but these creators... um Don't want to call them JRPGs because they're not Japanese, right? So then it's like, well, then what is a Japanese RPG? Does it have to be Japanese? But like, you know, Quartet, like we talked about earlier, Pat Holloman's game, it feels more like Final Fantasy VI than Final Fantasy XVI does. So which one is the Japanese RPG? And that's why I like the idea of looking at genre labels as like... sets of inspiration and themes and feelings and ideas rather than labels and saying like this is or this isn't a jrpg like i would say you know i would argue that the assassin's creed series has jrpg elements in it at this point right Hmm. like elements that would feel right at home right i would argue that final fantasy 15 has like skyrim inspirations right like once you start mixing ideas and and allowing yourself to cross over and pull from from different places without worrying like you know if i integrate this into my game am i not going to be a jrpg anymore or if i don't integrate this will i not be considered a jrpg or if i integrate this system that you know like is very reminiscent of something in final fantasy will i now be a jrpg even though i'm not made in like to me those conversations aren't really worthwhile because everybody's experiences are different like you and i have played a lot of the same games but even then what i if i crafted my perfect jrpg it would be chrono trigger but it would you know it would uh it would look different than your perfect jrpg right mine might have 2d like pixel art sprites yours might have you know pre-rendered graphics uh, backgrounds right or mine might have like a really kind of like straight and narrow like like straight and linear story progression yours might have something that's you know has you bopping all over the world uh to various different towns and exploring to find the story a little more those are all things that create jrpgs right uh there's no one single definition and i think it's dangerous to try to put any like objective label on on anything and that extends beyond video games or japanese rpgs but uh Oh, sure. Being being too hard headed about those definitions can be a bit of an
0: intellectual trap in yeah. any case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To connect some dots for the listener, um, we, we had um, Santiago Zapata, who's something of an expert on roguelikes on a while ago. And he talked a little bit about how, like, uh, I, I believe it was that conversation where we said, like, the Dark Souls games are definitely not roguelikes. Unless you were feeling especially trollish, you wouldn't even try to argue that they are. But they produce a lot of the same emotions, a lot of the same people like them. Yeah. Well, why is that? What, yeah. what qualities do they share in common? And I think that same kind of thinking is what informs which games are on the table to talk about in Fight Magic items. Yeah. Which of these things appeal, which, which taps into those same parts of your brain, which belong in the same cultural conversation, which are part of that, sh- that same history, that personal history and that broader cultural and cross-cultural history
1: yeah absolutely i listened to that interview uh earlier today actually and i found some of the things he was describing with like genre labels really fascinating in the way that you describe um thank you for listening and i hope you found it interesting but yeah,
0: yeah. like what he was talking about where there is value to someone who says i really like traditional roguelikes i want to find more of those right mm-hmm. having a place where they can do that super valuable yeah. but being gatekeepers about yeah. you know what doesn't belong in the same conversation on the yeah. same syllabus what have you yeah. that's less valuable i would yeah. i would dare
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think it like, I think it's totally fair to 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 look at a game and somebody's like, oh, I really like JRPGs. And you go, okay, like if you like JRPGs, you'd probably like Dragon Quest XI and you'd probably like, you know, Octopath Traveler and you'd probably like, you know, Nier. Um you know, those are are pretty different games. But then you know what? If you also like Japanese RPGs, you might like visual novels, right? Because they have, you know, very character driven twisty plots which are you yeah, know yeah. reminiscent of uh of Japanese RPGs like Xenogears second disc is a visual novel right like it's it's text <laughs> it's narrative yeah. and it's broken up by some interactive elements right like it it, it very much touches on what kind of made visual novels so compelling you know that was unintentional (laughs) i love the way you describe it in the book which is that they had
0: to they had too much plot and exposition to dumb so they backed themselves into accidentally making a visual novel exactly yeah
1: yeah yeah so you know like i think that being inclusive like using genre labels to to be inclusive and say like yeah like if you like jrpgs And you're looking for something that, you know, maybe is a little different, like here's stuff that like, you know, is sort of adjacent or like, you know, the Venn diagrams, you know, they overlap, but, you know, only a little bit, but still it's there. And that might, you know, help people find new experiences as well. Because if you're also like, oh, I'm a JRPG fan and that's it. And then you won't play, you know, 13 Sentinels because it doesn't have, I mean, it does have combat, but it's like a tower defense game. It's like, you'd be missing out on this experience that I think is really compelling for JRPG fans because it it has, you know, narrative and storytelling inspirations that are the same as a lot of the like anime driven uh, JRPGs, right? It's, it's very character driven in the way that a lot, of, uh, a lot of the genre is, right? But if you only play JRPGs and your definition of JRPG is very narrow, you're going to miss out on a lot of, you know, great experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I guess one more question then, which mm-hmm. is,
0: was there a game or a series or something that in the process of trying to make this a book that could actually be finished and read by people, which I appreciate that it is, was there a game or a series that you had to cut that either because there simply wasn't space or you couldn't connect enough dots to it or because even with this loose definition, it didn't quite fit?
1: Yeah, like a whole book's worth. <laughs> you know, I pitched this, pitch this book at a, at a certain word count. It came in quite a bit above that, uh, even after revision. So I wrote it. The first draft was 120,000 words. I revised it down to about 110. So, you know, it was much tighter, focused on like a narrative that sort of like started with Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy and, and, use them as like a, a, a backbone for the whole book. So like, you know, even when we sort of took diversions, we would come back to seeing how that was sort of inspired by or shaped by final fantasy, or maybe went on to shape future parts of those series. Um, you know, I wrote chapters, full chapters, um, I did tons of like research and interviews on, on on fascinating topics that just didn't make it into the book or didn't make it into the book in you know like the capacity that I would have loved to, but then the book would have been two hundred thousand words and and it would have been impossible to sell. People would have read it, but it would have been impossible to sell. Right? Um, Both are uh, A big one, no like question. a big chapter, I really wanted to write was about the Sega Saturn. Like mm, I didn't mm. have a Saturn growing up. I've only recently bought one in the past year. It's a awesome japanese rpg system like it has the best version of grandia it has lunar Mm. silver star story complete eternal blue panzer dragoon Sago, which i think every jrpg fan sort of pines over but it's twelve hundred dollars it's an amazing japanese rpg system in japan right but it didn't really have that footprint here in north america it didn't impact it didn't really help shape the genre and so that's something that you know like i put a lot of time into outlining and, and researching and then in the end it just didn't fit into the the overall narrative so like i talk about the saturn i talk about games on the system but i wanted you know i would have loved to have written a huge um chunk of of the book about the saturn but this is you know like about japanese rpgs in the west um but i also think you know like and i say this at the the beginning and the end of the book like this is about a journey through japanese rpgs this isn't the journey um You know, it's it's shaped by the experience that I had and that I watched my friends have and and that that the people I spoke to for the book had. But there's, you know, another there's an alternate universe of this of this book that has this book and like it focuses on the tales of series. Right. Which I really loved a Mm -hmm. lot of the older tales of games. Uh, I've kind of fallen off them now. Um, But, you know, I think that they're really interesting as well you know i would uh, the trails in the sky series is something i really would have loved to have dug into um and i think you know if i wrote this book in a couple of years and saw the way that those games continued to kind of shape that conversation that would be another kind of interesting follow-up and there's just there's so many games and everybody's experience going through the japanese rpg genre or any creative genre of of book or television or, or film is touched on and shaped by the experiences we have right nobody can play every jrpg um the ones that we do play you know the ones that are emotionally important to you are different than the ones that are emotionally important to me and 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 we're all shaped by that and and i tried to like you know make this a book about that experience not just about my experience but about how the feelings that i had towards certain games other people had towards different games and and bringing that forward, bringing that nostalgia and that, um, you know, that warmth and that like just feeling of satisfaction of, of going through, you know, a journey together, even if our experiences were a little bit different, uh, was really rewarding with the book. And I, a lot of early readers have connected with that. Um, and so like, you know, what I love to release some DLC that's like, you know, really <laughs> digs into some of the games that I was only able to sort of touch on on a surface level. Like, absolutely. Like, you know, if anybody wants, uh, to buy that book I'll uh I'll write it
0: I would, I would, I would get some DLC. I would, or or a hard sequel or a working designs expanded edition, you know, what, whatever, but uh, I could write a whole
1: book about working designs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was blessed with friends at that age who also wanted to play lunar silver star story complete. So yeah. Um, The book as it exists, I should emphasize is a fantastic read. It is, it is personal. And it, if you already know a ton about the genre, there will still be little things that you didn't know, little stories you weren't aware of, little dots you had never connected. And if this is your introduction to the genre, it's a pretty damn good one. It's, as you say, a journey, not the journey, but, uh, I think it's all the stronger for it. So, uh, so yeah, thank you a ton for talking about it.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the kind words about the book. It's such a pleasure to meet other people who love these games as, as much as I do. Uh, it's very gratifying. Oh, likewise, for sure.
0: Any, I mean, obviously I will tell people where they can get the book. Is there anything else? And I'll, I'll link to your blog and all that. Um, but is there anything else you want to plug before I
1: let you go? Yeah, you can find me like on Twitter at a dribble of ink, A-D-R-I-B-B-L-E-O-F-I-N-K. Uh, that's where I'm kind of most often found. Um, I have a website as well. The, the book has a website that I built. At- a handsome website at that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. And it's, you know, it's, it's provided a really good home for the, the, the book as well. Um, I'm sure it'll be linked in the, the show notes, but it's at fightmagicitems.rocks. And um, it has everything you need to know about the book. It has, you know, like, just information about the book, links for pre-orders, you know, a link to an excerpt. There was an excerpt on io9 that explored the legacy of uh, Final Fantasy VII, which I'm really happy with. And so you can find everything there that you could possibly possibly want, including a link uh, to this episode of the podcast as well. So um, that's probably the best, like, single source of information about the book on the web
0: right now. We didn't talk at all about your design shops and your design background, but they're fully on display on that website. So
1: yeah, it recommended for perusal. Well, I hope you had as good a time as I did. This was, did. This was this rad. Was, yeah, this is fantastic. I really appreciate the, uh, the invite and the chance to talk about the book and geek out for
0: an hour. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you one more time. And uh, yeah, have a good one. Awesome. Thank you so much. And that's the show. As Aiden said, you can find all of his internet exploits on his Twitter at dribble of ink. And you can go to fightmagicitems.rocks to find out where to get Fight Magic Items, the history of Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, and the rise of Japanese RPGs in the West in both physical and digital forms. The Everybody's Talking at Once podcast is hosted and produced by me, Drew Messenger Michaels, with support from my steady party for quite a while now, Francis Michelle Cannon, and Lucio Valentino. Support some weeks, including this week, from LV, I guess. Our logo is by Aaron Perry Zucker, using icons from the Noun Project. The current version of our theme song is by me. You can find more music that I make at carpedemon.band or by checking out this year's Charity EP Jam at charityEPjam.bandcamp.com. Proceeds from the latter go to Able Gamers. You can also, if you're so inclined, hear me play tabletop RPGs on DicePunks. You can find that at dicepunks.com or by searching DicePunks wherever podcasts be podcasted. Speaking of those podcastly places, that's also where you can find the entire back catalog of this show for free. We truly appreciate you listening. There is zero pressure to do anything else or anything more. But if you would like to support the show in some other way, you can do that by leaving us a good rating or review wherever you listen, assuming that place has those things. Or if it causes you no financial hardship whatsoever, you can throw us a few bucks on Patreon, Ko-fi, or Gumroad thank you tremendously to our current patrons and other sundry supporters with a special thanks to carlos de los santos and darth raptora and an even specialer thanks to the mysterious ian k and lucas cosen hope to see you in two weeks between now and then you know find some small way to make the world a better place join with your party play a weird game take care of yourselves take care of each other so long for now everybody